Jordan is on best. Harper's on Miller. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler, and today I'm joined by Jay Michael, the Indy Star. Jay, how are you doing today, man? Pretty good, considering kind of uh, getting into that offseason mode for however long that lasts. So it's going to be interesting this year. Yeah, no, I know. I remember uh, I was feeling that a little bit for like the first two days, and then uh, and then Nate got fired. I was like, all right, well, we're back on it. Um, so I agree. It's been kind of a, a whirlwind a little bit, all the rumors coming out about Mike D'Antoni and Everything. I know you've been on the grind, man. You putting out an article like every other day. I swear to God. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, you know, with the playoffs going on, and you know, D'Antoni obviously being one of the early names thrown out there. Um, you know, his, his name's kind of been floating out there for much longer before people really heard it. Um, you know, D'Antoni's people have been kind of interested in getting his name out there in terms of. Uh, uh, being a, a candidate for certain jobs, Indiana's definitely one of them. Like right when Nate got fired, you know, for instance, I was told that um, they hadn't talked to the Pacers at any point. Uh, I mean, which look, nobody's going to admit they were talking to a team that had a coach in place um, because that's just bad business and yeah. uh, bad etiquette. Uh, but I, I was told genuinely because it was a background conversation. Um, look, you know, would Dan Tony be interested in the job? Yes. Um, but uh, but they've known D'Antoni's reps and his people that he would be looking for a new home soon. So he was natural, a natural fit. Based on what I've gathered from what the Pacers are looking for in their next coach, I'm not so sure it's a slam dunk that it's going to be D'Antoni, but it would seem that he would check a lot of boxes. I mean, I guess you can't check every single box, but at least on the offensive side of the ball, you know, he could potentially bring some things that they uh, are desperately uh, looking for in their next coach. Yeah, definitely. And so I want to bring you on because right now I'm, I actually forgot to tell you about this. I'm doing a, so it's like a podcast series for the off season. I'm going to release them all on the same day next week and uh, see how it goes. I've never done that before. I don't, I don't know anybody who has, so we're going to see what happens. Um, but I want to do just kind of like a, an overview, like off season mirror check a little bit. So what, what, what happens this off season that would be ideal for the Pacers? Maybe obviously not like the uh, a plus, but you know, if, if this happens, this is good. This is showing progress and where we're going. So I think the first thing, you know, whenever you look at anything in, in life and in basketball too, you have to ask, where are you at? So right now, my opinion, this team is pretty much locked into a first or second round out every year with where they're at. And maybe they're an injury or two away from uh, a conference finals appearance, but that's my personal opinion. Uh, when gauging where this team is at, what, what would you say with it? Uh, I think they got to make an aggressive move. Um, um, and by aggressive, I mean make a deal that uh, kind of cleans up the roster a little bit. Um, it, it's a tough choice, I guess, on exactly what you do because, look, you've had a team that's won, you know, four, I think it's 45 games this year in a 73-game season. They were on pace to win 50. That's not bad. Um, but if you're not getting out of the first round of the playoffs, then, you know, how much does that really matter after you have uh, four first-round exits in a row? So, um, you know, when they rebuilt this team uh, coming into this year, 
the whole idea was to build a team that could get out of the first round. It gave you some more versatility offensively. I think they have that versatility. Um, but I think if you're going to make an aggressive move, you got to decide, do you keep Demonis Sabonis or do you keep Miles Turner? I just don't think it's feasible to say both. You have to make up your mind. You have to spit or get off the pot. There's another word that you use there, but I'm going to keep it clean. You got to spit or get <laughs> off the pot. And, um, and, and make a hard decision. And I think that's ultimately what you do. And from what I've gathered, that that guy's going to be Turner if they do that. Um, it's not going to be Sabonis. I think that's what most people would expect um, or want in Indiana if you had to move one of the bigs. Uh, Kevin Pritchard just said recently, that, you know, that, you know, we got to, you know, maybe see what other coaching candidates say. Maybe they can be convinced that maybe this could work. Miles and Sabonis actually like playing with each other. I get all of that. But I think ultimately um, you have to make a hard decision. And there's a market for Turner. And I think even though the Pacers got swept out of the first round, even though he started really bad in that series with Miami, because he looked really bad in game one. He played uh, really good in the last three. He finished pretty strong. So now you can say, man, maybe this is – he played well against a pretty good player in Bam Adebayo. Um, maybe this is the best time because his stock – you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, selling high. And quite frankly, um, despite what anybody's going to say publicly, Miles Turner expects to be on another roster next year. I do know that. Now, uh, does it happen before the season starts or sometime during the season? I mean, I don't know. I, I know of teams that have been discussed. I, I can't mention them now. Mm-hmm. I can't mention them just now because – and the reason why I say that is because it is so early before we get into – um, you know, potential trades. I, I've heard of two teams uh, mentioned uh, in, in trades and that they've expressed, expressed interest in Turner. But it's so early in the process because the season's still going on. There are players who are still active on other rosters who could be involved in the deal. And obviously, uh, you know, there's tampering violations that could occur if you get busted doing that. And there's a lot of preliminary chit-chatter that happens everywhere with all 30 teams. Don't believe for one second that, you know, the Houston Rockets aren't already milling, option, milling options or the L.A. Lakers on what they're going to do going forward because you do that anyway in a normal season, but especially with this offseason that's going to be so short because of COVID and then trying to turn it around and restart again as early as December, um, you're going to really have to get your ducks in a row quickly. So um, it only makes sense, too, that you, you really start kind of mapping out Teams have mapped out strategies of, okay, if this happens, if this guy goes here, if this happens, we're going to do this. So those kind of discussions have, have happened already uh, with the Pacers and, and the 29 other teams in the league. Yeah, no doubt. I, and I think when looking at how the chips are going to fall and, and like you mentioned, getting ducks in the row, um, I think the first one for the Pacers is obviously finding a coach. Um, and, you know, like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, MDA is right up there. Um, and a lot of other guys have been rumored yesterday. Uh, Dan Craig was mentioned as getting an interview with the Pacers for the head coaching job uh, from Miami. Um, but, you know, not even looking at candidates on their own necessarily. I think what should the Pacers be looking for in a head coach? You know, like, well, obviously, you know, KP has mentioned a program builder. How, how you want to take that is obviously, you know, up for debate. Um, but in terms of finding head coach, what, what would you consider uh, home runs are all I'm going to put, but what's a double or a single or a double or a triple for this team this year? 
I mean, they want a they want a guy who's I think they want a player who skews younger, and that's the only thing, only reason why I give a little bit of pause to the Dan Tony thing because with Mike's in his late sixties, yeah. Um, they want a guy who's younger, who's going to engage more with players in a one-on-one setting. They're looking for that Taylor Jenkins, uh, Nick Nurse type of coach uh, who's innovative, who can relate to young players, but also um, just has a, you know, isn't kind of set on like, hey, if this doesn't work, the answer is for us to do it better and do it harder, which is pretty much what you got. Most we have of to execute. That's <laughs> the classic so, name term. They want, they want a coach who's willing to go and even risk failing by experimenting with some other things. Um, and and I, I think that's what they wanted more uh, out of McMillan. Look, they didn't think they were going to win a series of Miami, okay, going into the series with, without Sabonis. They knew it was a stretch to beat him with, with Sabonis, that it was going to be tough. Without Sabonis, they knew they weren't winning a series. And even if you listen to Pritchard in his public statements um, since uh, Nate's firing, he says – well, we thought we could win one or two games. You see, like, so you're not saying that you thought you could win the series. So it wasn't even incumbent upon Nate, I think, to get them out of the first round. They just thought they would do better and be more competitive. I mean, look, depending on how this series with Milwaukee turns out, I don't know right. how we're going to do all of this. Uh, like, but I think regardless of how – look, the, the Milwaukee Bucks could end up losing in the first round to Miami. I think it still doesn't impact – it will tell you Miami's even better than most people thought. Um, better than even I thought. Um, I agree, man. But, but I, I think trading for that trade they made for Iguodala and Jay Crowder took them to the next level. Uh, when they were playing Myers Leonard, the Pacers would be that team in the series. Um, but that changed everything. And Eric Spolster, you look at a guy like, for instance, may, maybe he's not playing against Eric Spolster, who in game four alone, ran four different sets on ATOs, and the Pacers ran nothing different. And kind of gives you the idea of the mindset that they want in a future coach. It's not necessarily that Nate was going to tear up the canvas and start from scratch and come up with a new game plan and all of a sudden win the series. It's that the imagination to try some new things and to, to not just rely on, you know, the same old principles that he's been relying on. So I think that was more of the deal – they were looking at – they're not look. they weren't – I think ultimately they stopped looking at this in a, in a sense of just this series. They started thinking of the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of resetting the culture and getting the team going with a different mindset, playing a different way, going in a different direction. Now, the only question that I have is – the biggest question I have is, you know, regardless of who your coach is, do you have the personnel to run with whatever that coach has? And – I was told that they don't necessarily feel like they have to hire a coach before they start changing a roster, but it is obviously ideal yeah. that you do that. I mean, it, it's, but you know, I guess part of it depends on if whoever they end up hiring, is that person still going to be active in the playoffs? Cause then you're going to have to wait. And I, I just don't know how all the timing there is going to end up working out. But I think regardless, you have to settle on somebody before you start changing the roster and whoever you settle on, if you don't have the pieces, then, you know, that's going to determine how significant or aggressive moves that you're going to have to make. And I, I think, like I said, I think the most aggressive – look, hiring a new coach is the number one priority, obviously. With that, I think that's that's a given. So, to me, once you get past that, I think you look at your personnel, and if you want to play uh, more five-out style, more dynamic, more threes, 
better efficient shots? Um, how are you able to achieve that? And how you got to change your roster? And if you look at that core, you know, Jeremy Lamb is a long to mid-range type of shooter. He's not a high volume, uh, high accuracy three-point shooter. Oladipo is an average three-point shooter, especially when now that he's come back from the knee injury, he's below average. Brogdon, we know most of his career, with the exception of this past season, has been a good you know, is a 40% three-point shooter. I think he'll be okay. T.J. Warren's a mid-range guy. Despite that 53-point game against Philadelphia in a bubble and the way he shot the three at, a, at times, the, the, the bigger picture suggests he's a mid-range guy and not a three-point guy. But he could be maybe a three-point guy. So if you're going to shape your roster into this three-point shooting team, you got to ask yourself, how many of those pieces that I just mentioned do you keep? Or do you have to change, make changes there too? And so that's, that's where I think they, you know, and, and despite all of that, the Pacers aren't the longest, most athletic uh, team in the league either. So you want to play that quick pace, up-tempo style. Do you need more guys that kind of fit that? Look, they believe they have most of the pieces to get the job done because they have a lot of good shooters. Uh, but I still think you need to add another athletic slash speed dynamic to the team to maybe mm-hmm. help. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. And I think one of the interesting things, too, is looking at uh, – well, first of all, I don't know if you saw this, but John Hollinger tweeted out after Miami beat the Bucks the first time, can Nate McMillan get his job back now, which I thought was funny. Obviously, it's different when you, you're coming from the market. But uh, it's actually, like, while it's not even talking about the Pacers, I mean, if the Bucks lose this series, there is a very real chance that Mike Budenholzer gets fired. I, I've, I've heard that talked around by some of my buddies who cover the, who cover the Bucks. And that's it's wild to me to think about that, but it's true. I mean, watching it, like, they are not – like, it's it's like watching the Pacers play them in the first round. It's crazy, man. Yeah, they got – people forget, like, I, I've never I've never committed to the Milwaukee – I picked Toronto to win last year, mm. um, win the finals. I mean, excuse me, not win the finals because I didn't know Kevin Durant was going to get hurt to win the East. Um I picked them back in January last year. Even when we got into the postseason, they got down two games to Milwaukee. I stuck with Toronto because I thought they had the stuff, and Nick Nurse was the kind of guy who does stuff. You know, and again, that, that's another way to look at McMillan. Like Nick Nurse, if, if McMillan had the team Nick Nurse had last year and they went down 2-0, would he have done some of the things that Nick Nurse ended up doing? You know, the answer's probably no, and that's what the Pacers want to get away from. Well, Bud Noser. Uh, you people forget this. And I just tweeted this the other day. You know, when he was in Atlanta, that 61 team wouldn't have made it to, uh, wouldn't have made it out the conference semis if John Wall didn't break his wrist in game one. The, the Wizards went in there, upset him in game one. Um, uh, forced, I think that series went six games. I think the la- every game the Wizards lost was on the table. They were just missing um, – if they had John Wall, they win that series, in my opinion, in maybe five games. They were that dominant because Atlanta had dominated them during the regular season series, uh, and then when they got into the postseason, they were the Wizards changed up. They went to Paul Pierce at the four, something he had done all year, and they figured out how to defend the, the, the that that five out style, which is hey, you know when Kyle Korver comes off of that screen. He's only going to slide left to right on the perimeter. It's not like you're going to run out on him and he's going to pump fake and then drive into the lane and finish or create for someone. He's going to pump fake and shift left or right. They took him away completely. 
They tried to make Al Horford beat him because they knew they ran him a lot in the high post and pinch post running the offense. They basically locked down that entire thing. And Budenholzer had no answer for it. And then John Wall broke his wrist. So my, my thing is, I'm not totally surprised by it. That's partly why I haven't been totally sold on Milwaukee, despite him having even better personnel in Milwaukee than he had in Atlanta. I just saw then it was so easily wrecked if you were disciplined. And the Wizards were, you know, not a, wasn't a great team. It was a good team. We're able to do that. And so until Budenholzer shows me something that he can change my opinion about how they play in the postseason, um, in a seven-game series, I think teams can figure out how to beat that. And they have. And so, and it's crazy. People in, in Indiana, if you got a coach like Budenholzer, if you said, hey, man, Mike Budenholzer is going to leave, whether he gets fired or leaves Milwaukee, he's going to be the coach as soon as he's out of Milwaukee. Everybody in Indiana would be doing backflips. But everybody, there'd be probably a bunch of people in Milwaukee doing backflips too that he's gone. So it, it goes to show you the perception, the perception that we have of certain coaches that this guy is bad and this guy is good. It, it is so starkly different from market to market because there are people in Philadelphia who think Nate McMillan would be a great fit there. That they was, oh man, he'd be a huge upgrade from Brett Brown. People here in Indiana will, will laugh like, oh, that's a terrible hire. To them, that's a great hire. And it's all based on their perception of that person mm-hmm. and what their need is uh, and what the kind of coach they, you know, they feel like that team needs at that time. And those needs shift year to year. And clearly with the Pacers, when it comes to McMillan, their needs finally shifted that they felt like they needed to go another direction. But it's crazy. Best record in the Eastern Conference, or best record in the league uh, that Milwaukee will have had, like, what, two years in a row? Mm-hmm. And that you could be out of a job as a result. It just kind of goes to show you how crazy – this whole coaching thing is it's not that none of these coaches like uh, McMillan or Budenholzer or Mike D'Antonio is about to get booted out in Houston and everybody's giddy about him in Indiana. But, you know, just because you guys love a person here in this market doesn't mean that feeling is reciprocated in the other market that he's coming from. To me, it's just crazy how that works. So going off that, you know, just looking at the team retooling and uh, or However you want to put it, I, I, you know, looking at, especially just looking at, you, you mentioned TJ, um, I think him moving to the four makes a ton of sense. Um, and I think one of the ways we can talk about trades in a minute too, um, but looking at internal growth is one of the ways where this team could get better. And I wonder what your thoughts are on, on how TJ, his, his level of improvement that he could hit. And I personally think, you know, just, I mean, him at the four, as we saw in the bubble, I mean, that opens up a lot of stuff for him. Uh, I think he has more of an advantage off the dribble against bigger, slower guys. So I think that it, it opens up a lot for him. Yeah, yeah, definitely will. Um, I mean, he's yeah, he, he he's got a speed advantage against them. You know, he's not going to have the same advantages when I, it, it's kind of weird. Like when I was looking at the what was going on in the bubble, especially when they were going against Miami. Um, like I was thinking of like, man, what would. Like, I, I didn't think Nate would get fired after they guaranteed his contract for the following season because, you know, that's, by the way, remains still a mystery to me. You didn't have to pay him any money to move on from him. And why do you guarantee his money in July? Because you were sold on him. Like, that, that about face, and, you know, as I had reported, Herb Simon's like, no, it's, this is done. He's got to go. I, I know they're like, hey, we're making this definitive position. It's just – Curious to me how that pivot just all of a sudden happened because mm-hmm. you let him go for nothing and now you got to let him go and give away money 
And owners don't like to give away money. You know, Irv Simon. Irv Simon does not like to give away money. That is <laughs> for get, damn sure. But, but that shows you how strongly he felt about it too. Exactly. Um, so I think that's significant. Um, you know, when I was talking to Nate, he was like, he was, he was shot. He understood. He took responsibility for why he got, he got fired and all those things. But after he got that, you know, his, his, his contract guarantee for 2020, 2021, he still says he can't explain why he got fired after that. Because it, it, to me, that just adds on top of the Victor, will he play, won't he play, will he play, won't he play kind of stuff. Everything was just so confusing with mixed signals coming from multiple sides. Um, it, 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 it kind of got a little bit of soap opera-ish. But, um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. Like, with T.J. Warren playing the four, is about, I thought he would play the four actually more during the regular season than he did. Um, and, and that's, you know, and, and that gets to moving Sabonis or Turner, right? Yeah. You can't, he can't do that if you keep Sabonis and Turner. And I thought in the bubble, um, you know, even, you know, we talk about, like, well, mixing it up. What would, what would Nick Nurse do, I would think to myself, when they were struggling and T.J. Warren was struggling coming out? You know what Nick Nurse would have done? And I tweeted, it's like, I'd bench Aaron Holiday because you need length to contest these shooters. Put in Justin, which Nate eventually did. He probably did it a game too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also I said bench T.J. Warren, not because you don't need T.J. Warren, but I, I felt like you needed to get him away from Jimmy Butler. <laughs> and I felt like you need to get away from Jimmy Butler and put – uh, an Aaron, an Edmund Sumner type of guy, in, uh, because I thought they needed to be able to chase these shooters uh, and be able to contest or be able to contest these shooters a little bit better. And then maybe you get T.J. Warren against maybe some second unit guys, or it makes Eric Spolster have to change up something, and maybe he screws something up, right? But I yeah. thought even though even though T.J. eventually started to play better and get his shots, like the matchup with Butler for me was just a bad matchup for him on both sides of the ball. So, yeah, I think there's no doubt you could use T.J. Warren differently and get more efficient, get, as efficient as he is. And that's crazy because, you know, he's an efficient scorer most of the time. But I think you still could have even gotten more out of him uh, in that series. But I think the biggest thing, too, is, like, when you look at, you know, they're looking at getting more shots that gets them more points per possession. And that was one thing that was said to me. It's like, you know, they're looking at, it's not just that they lost four row. It's that the shots that they were getting <laughs> and getting were garbage, started, honestly, Yeah, that, that even the ones that went in, even though Brogdon had that 34 point game, that was great. And you saw some of these guys that, you know, but the, the shots that they were getting were still difficult uh, le- le- shots that were worth less than what you saw Miami taking. And if you just sit there and you do the math, you're going to lose, even though you may, you may play well. You know, if you look at the numbers, uh, the Pacers did well in isolation against Miami. The problem is <laughs> the points you get per possession is plummeting, while their points per possession uh, by not playing isolation is rising. So it, it's, that, it's that sort of stuff. But so, yeah, that's why I said T.J. Warren at the four would be good, which is why I was suggesting you would have to move one of the bigs. Um, I, I would actually like – I think Brogdon being off the ball – Yes, I was actually I was talking about someone with this earlier. I think as good as he was as a first his first year as a full time point guard, really, um, he thrives so much better off the ball. He's not really a good off the dribble shooter. He needs a little bit of space because he doesn't have a ton of lift on his shot. I think it would help him a ton to be off ball. I got. I think you have to get him off the ball, and by getting him off the ball, I mean look, 
one of the funny things is like I, I still wonder like I was told that McMillan didn't really wasn't sold on Brogdon as the guy that they should get in free agency last year. Um, believe it or not, <laughs> uh, the name I was told was Jeff T. Was <laughs> a a reunion. Oh, man. Uh, because he thought he didn't play well with Paul George and that that was not a representation of who he was. Now, of course, I mean, that's a whole other debate and discussion for another time. Um, but he wanted a faster sort of guy like that uh, who can create better pace. Um, but I think so. And so to that end, I think, um, so what I just said about Mal- Malcolm being off the ball, being better. Look, the numbers are indisputable. The eye test is indisputable that he's better off ball. The numbers, I mean, have you seen his numbers on spot ups? Oh, this, year, this year versus last year? Uh, I, it's pretty close to the same, isn't it? Oh, he, no, he was used on spot ups last year by Milwaukee. He got 312 points from them off spot-ups. But the Pacers, he got 91 points off spot-ups. Oh, that is a huge difference. Yeah. Oh, well, I meant, are, are the percentages about the same? I feel like the percentages. No, no, no. He, he shot like 50, like his overall field goal percentage, like 51, 52. Uh, spot-ups in Milwaukee, he was 36 in Indiana. Oh, okay. Wow. I didn't realize it was that drastic. Oh, yeah, it was drastic. And so that that's like, that's an example of how, more efficient and easier some of his points can come rather than, you know, isolating Bam out of bio off a of pick and roll. <laughs> and trying to You'd think, you think, but. Hey, look, I, I, I thought going into it, based on the way they had played Miami in that last seeding game, right, I gave them the benefit of the doubt. And I was actually talking to some other scouts about this. Like, there is no way they're going to do this repeatedly in a series against Miami. And... There is no way they're going to get switches. From, you're going to go from Duncan Robinson guarding you to get a screen to get Bam out of bio and you on a switch. No way you do that. And it took him, like, how long to stop calling from the, the screens from the five? It was until halfway through the third game, I think. It's like, you got to stop calling from screens from the five, man. Like, that's just – you can't – like, you – and so anyway. Um, so, yeah, so it's stuff like that. Brogdon off spot-ups is better, which means if you do that – Who's now your point? Who's who's your primary ball handler? Um, and you know it can't you know it's not going to be Jeremy Lamb. He's a scorer. Mm-hmm. Um, that guy Oladipo is he even going to be there next year? I, I lean towards no. Uh, and I'm not talking about when he becomes a free agent. I'm talking about this upcoming season. So then that throws into the mix. What do you do with the point guard position? Um, unless you think maybe it's just a position that you just got to have good enough ball handles in the backcourt where you can just kind of change who's handling the ball, you know, play, you know, every, every time you come up to court. I mean, I think that's probably the 21st century way of looking at it that you don't necessarily need a pure point guard, but I think you still need, you, you need another ball handling guard who can start, who's a quality starter to do that. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think, um, I think Brogdon off ball is moving Turner Brogdon off ball is huge. Um, because it's, I mean, there was a possession, by the way, I want to say it was in game four, late in game four. I should have clipped it. I'm going to clip it probably eventually. To show Brogdon had the ball, he dribbled for like 18 seconds of the 21st Oh, second yeah. Ball. I think actually, I think Alex Golden put that up. He did, he did that. It's, uh, yeah, 18 seconds. I think it was 30-plus dribbles. It was crazy. It was, yeah, it was awful. Because they, they tried to run, a, I think they tried to run a side pick and roll and then had to, I don't know, they flipped the screen and then tried to run it again. It was crazy, but it's like that's not 
the way – that's not the best way, obviously, for him to play. Yeah. Uh, especially because he's not, he's not going to explode over somebody and finish. Exactly. He's not – like, he's a very good driver, but he doesn't, sep- he, he doesn't create enough separation for himself getting to the rim. Uh, so that's part of the issue with it. But then what I'm really excited about, the idea of you – know, not even just Mike D'Antoni, but anybody who, who runs a, a little bit more of a modern offense – I'm not saying they have to be the beautiful game of Spurs, but I mean, if there's more than two actions going on in a play, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind and, and just like cry tears of joy. Cause it'll finally happen for the first time ever, man. Like, uh, like, I mean, that's why I broke down into isolation, isolation so much. Cause you'd run a pick and roll and then there, there, I mean, I, obviously you got to have guys spotting up, but there's gotta be actions coming off of something. I mean, I think, um, or she wrote with, uh, it's Dave Dufour, Seth part now, Moe Heel. They were talking about, you know, just kind of how, how important, you know, cutting and movement is. And I feel like that's something that this team could really benefit from. Um, obviously, you have to have the guys to do it. But I think, I mean, TJ Warren is one of the better cutters I've, I've watched in the game. He's exceptional at it, but he doesn't get used to do it a lot. Um, so, yeah, it's like little things like that that I think will really help out the offense moving forward. Yeah, and you know, and I'm I'm just curious when you do that. If you do that, where Sabo- how do you think Sabonis is going to fit in that though? Like, he's not. I mean, look, he's obviously a guy you can run offense through. Do you run it through him that much, or is he mostly a guy who's out there screening people open? And his reticence to take that pop. Look, he's not a three point shooter, mm-hmm. so he's not going to be a volume three point shooting big. Is he going to be a good enough three point shooting big where? him taking like, like an Al Horford type of three point shooting big, like you can take him occasionally and, and catch people by surprise. Um, you know, I, I just be curious on how the in theory you use him, you know, is, you know, you use him in similar fashion. Cause you know, he screens a lot of people open, but they run a lot of stuff through him and you slow down the offense too. Yeah. Right. A lot of times to, to in these half court sets, at least on the Nate McMillan, they did. I'm just curious how somebody would implement using him, with this team as well, because I really do believe Turner is going to be on the move this summer. Yeah. This, this fall. Yeah. It's, I know, dude, it's so weird to say this fall. <laughs> like I was looking at the date the other day and I was like, this time last year, the Pacers just signed Jakar Sampson for the last <laughs> roster spot. Like it's, it's so different, but um, yeah, especially with Sabonis, I wonder too, cause I think he had the sixth most touches this year in the league or something like that. It's very close to that. And yeah, I wonder a lot how that works out because we, I mean, we just saw with, with Miles, it took five years and change to, uh, to get him to pop to three and be willing to shoot that shot. So, you know, that's a whole other thing with Domas. Um, and I, that's, it, it's interesting because he's such a good uh, post facilitator, but then it also brings into question how valuable is that to your offense because it can work. Um, but then you saw throughout the regular season that that would bog down at the end of plays or at the end of quarters or possessions because you're trying to run a DHO. And if it's up at the top of the key, I mean, he just gets stuck out there because if somebody um, tries to, you know, deny Malcolm Brogdon to come out to the top, you see Domas so often he would he'd look left, nothing there, look right, nothing there, and then he'd dribble into an 18-footer. And he, he hit them, like, pretty well. I think he was in, like, the top 25% uh, among bigs in terms of, like, distance shooting from, from 16 out. But, I mean, at the same time, that's not, that's not what this team wants or needs. Like, you're talking about the math problem uh, before. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's crazy. Like, he's – and I wonder, the one thing that I haven't really 
I don't know how they would balance this out. Like he wanted to start. That was part of when he signed his extension, you know, he wanted to be in the starting five. So that put mm-hmm. him in a situation where they had to start two bigs. Um, and so they promised him that starting gig. I mean, it's kind of like the season before when they lost Oladipo and they signed Wes Matthews um, late in the season. And he signed under the um, condition that he starts. Like at what point, and not not that they would even you know that they would reach this with Sabonis, but if you kept two bigs, you'd have to put one. If, if by chance you kept Turner and Sabonis, you didn't make a move. One of them's got to go to the bench, right? You send Turner to the bench, mentally you're going to lose him. <laughs> like yeah. he's he is going to be irate. He he will be demanding a trade before he actually goes and sit on the bench. Um, you put Sabonis on the bench, you renege on a promise that you would have him starting. But just like Wes Matthews a couple seasons ago, he played so badly. I know you promised him that he'd start, but at what point do you say, you know what? Sorry. We, you know, we, we promised we'd start you under the condition that you would be starting quality. <laughs> yeah. That's a good like, that, that, that's the, that's the unspoken part. Like, yeah, we're assuming that you would be a, a quality starter or you would be a starting quality that there was nobody behind you. And you know, when I, I remember that series of Boston, look, the Pacers are going to lose that series of Boston. I think no matter what adjustments Miller made, kind of similar to what you saw here in Miami. But I, I always thought um, that uh, Matthews had to go to the bench. Like it's, and if you lose him, screw it. You're going to lose, you end up losing the series in a sweep anyway. Um, but I thought Matthews had to go to the bench. He was to me that much of a liability on the offensive end. And so, but yeah, so I looked at this whole thing with Sabonis. If you keep two bigs, you're going to have to piss off one of them. So that's why you got to trade one. Right. And yeah. I think the guy you're going to end up probably trading is Turner because I think his value in the market is going to be greater, even though Sabonis was the all-star. Uh, and I, from what I understand, I, I don't think he would mind a fresh start. Um, now no one should interpret that to mean that I just said that Miles Turner has demanded a trade. That's not what I said. What I said was I don't think he would mind a fresh start um, because you know, I wrote something today that just uh, that published last night, where if you look at it, you know, he took a step back, you know, when Paul George left, you know, Turner thought, hey, man, this is my moment. Victor comes in, kills it, Victor's team. Um, Victor gets hurt, Turner's got a chance to kind of step into that gap and do some things. And then they, Sabonis now starts, they run everything through Sabonis, his role is minimized. And then you also bring in Malcolm Brogdon, who's really the voice in the locker room. Um, and so, it's it's like and and you know he signed a contract that had you know like about seven eight million dollars of incentives in it that he reached these certain benchmarks that he's not going to reach because quite frankly he hasn't been using ways that would allow him to reach him you know he's 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 always going to be you know that third fourth fifth guy you know and if that high so I think he wouldn't mind a fresh start if you asked him honestly and sincerely um, you know where he could be able to flourish like that guy that we saw in the last couple of games of the series against Miami because that guy, uh, that guy was pretty good. And I, like I said, I think, you know, depending on what you can get in the market for him, I, you know, I think you got to make a decision and you sell high. And if, if Turner had looked bad throughout the entire – if he looked in those other three games of the series with Miami, the way he looked in the first game, you know, might have difficulty selling him to some teams just because you're thinking like, wow, the last impression is the one they remember most. The last impression they saw of Turner in that series that the Pacers lost, but damn, he played well. And they did some good things with him. And I think, so for the Pacers, I think they can get some assets for him. 
Um, like I said, I know about two teams that have inquired already. Um, doesn't mean anything at this point, but um, they, they got to do something. They got to do something with that. And, 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 you know, you know, and if you figure out, Hey, it's a bonus, you were an all-star last year, but you're not going to be touching the ball first, <laughs> like every single time down the floor. And we're not running things through the post to, and kind of playing off of that high post to low post with you playing. Is he going to be okay with that? And that would mean no more all-star, right? Or likely no more all-star and his numbers plummeting. Is he going to be okay with that? As long as his checks are cashing. And I would say if you're winning, yes. If you start doing all this other stuff and he's minimizing, you're losing and maybe not, but you know, I think those are all significant questions that, that, that they have to address. But um, yeah, moving some guys around in different positions and using them differently is obviously, I think regardless of who the coach is, you have to do that. I think you got to move away from using Sabonis so much there and TJ Warren at the four and, and, and moving one of your bigs who I think will be Miles Turner. To me, those are the three personnel things that you got to, got to work off and figuring out, okay, like I said about Brogdon, getting him off ball. So that's four things, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and well, it's interesting too because I think a lot's gonna, any real improvements gonna have to come through trade because the free agency mark. First of all, not a good free agency market this year. Second of all, the Pacers are gonna have the MLE, and I believe that's it. They'll have the MLE and they can sign vet minimums, um, but they don't have a lot to work with this summer in terms fall this fall in terms of uh, bringing new talent onto the roster. Um, and I, I know KP talked about maybe splitting up the MLE, um, but then that brings into question how much value you're getting. Uh, regardless, it's going it's gonna to be largely the same roster with some additions and subtractions. Um, so not largely the same roster. I don't know what my phrasing was there. Uh, but, yeah, man, it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting offseason. And by the uh, way, I can, by the way, I can tell you one thing. Justin, yeah. Justin Holiday, you want to keep him, you give him the full MLE. That I know. If you want to keep him, you want to split it, and you're not going to give him the full MLE, that's going to raise some issues, unless you're giving him something else above the MLE, which, you know, obviously would be fine. But Yeah. Well, that brings the question, too. I mean, do you think that uh, Simon would be willing to go over the tax to keep him? Because, I mean, I think they can, they can re-sign him, right, without having to use the MLE, or do they have to use the MLE on him? That's a good question. I have to look that up and make sure. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. I think – I mean, I, and I think that's part of the reason why when I said, you know, when I said, when I kind of said previously, not to you, but I was on another podcast and mm-hmm. I said, holiday stand, it wasn't a matter of him not liking the team, the organization, Indianapolis, any of those things. It was said to me months prior, this is long before, that they were not sure if they were going to be able to keep him because he was playing so well and that he might command so much. I think that they had anticipations probably based on what they were hearing what some other teams might be able to offer him that they might not be able to match that it was more that not that Justin didn't want to stay not that um the the Pacers didn't want him now they have been some things that have happened and I kind of reported this a couple of times in Indy Star including today uh you know the locker room culture just wasn't good. You know a large chunk of that went on was put on Nate McMillan's shoulders for the way he managed the locker room. Um, there were some other things too, though, um, that dealt with leadership in that locker room, who's in charge, kind of things. Um, but you know when it when it comes to a guy like Justin, look, six six can defend multiple positions, 
40% three-point shooter. Was you, you got to decide for yourself if you're the Pacers or another team. Was this an anomaly? Like, was he, is he really this good of a shooter? And, and this was in an offense, as we were just talking about, that wasn't that imaginative. So imagine maybe what he could do in a, you know, a, a really good spread offense. He might even be able to be better. Those are the things that they have to figure out. Um, and, but the other thing, too, is he wants a multi-year deal. This guy played in Hungary for a year. Like, after he played on that Golden State team that won the, that first championship, he didn't play in the finals. I think he was deactivated for the finals that year. But he ended up having to go over and play in Hungary. He's bounced around on teams after teams after teams, like what, seven, eight other teams, including the Knicks and the Chicago Bulls. And he would have been in a Bulls uniform if the Bulls weren't so dysfunctional. He never would have made it to the Pacers because the Bulls made him a better offer last summer. But he had already been traded from the Bulls, I think, twice. Uh, didn't believe in what they were doing, which he had good reason to feel. That <laughs> Definitely. But he turned out, he turned down uh, uh, more money uh, from the Bulls to come to the Pacers. So that kind of shows you that if it was just all about money for him, he would probably he'd, he would sign with the Bulls. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he could be in such high demand. The, here's the question, though. The other question, given the finances of all of these teams after COVID and not having fans, what is, is everybody going to be able to, you know, is everybody going to be able to afford to offer guys like him? Well, ideally for him, this would be a year he really got paid if the market was healthy and we didn't have COVID. I think he would be in such high demand. We, I just don't know how many teams can pay for him right now to pull him away because we don't know what team finances are. You know, these owners have other businesses that are losing money, how that's going to impact decisions they make going forward. Um, and so who knows? I don't even that. And, and you're right about the trade market. Aside from the, the, the free agency market not being great, the trade market, some of these teams may want to just get rid of salary. Um, and they can't afford to be get repeater. You know, maybe they didn't care about the luxury tax a year ago because they like, will be OK. But now they do. Right. So there could be some guys who are being um, dangled out there. You know, I've been told this by a couple of front office people uh, and agents around the league that. They think there's some guys who we didn't think coming into the season who would be on the market. Who are going to end up on the market because of all the financial situations involving COVID and other businesses? Just as like you're going to see ownership groups, the, the composition of them, if not the outright sale of teams are going to happen because some of these ownership groups have gotten shook up by what's happening with COVID as well. So you're going to, I think there's a lot of unknown stuff that's going to happen there. And so the Pacers could benefit from that or – um, they could suffer because of that because, you know, um, maybe there's other teams out there like Indiana in their same position saying, you know what, this is our year to pounce. So um, we can make some moves. We're going to make Justin Holiday an offer. We thought we were, you know, that he's, the, he's, a, he's a key piece. We're going to make offer Justin Holiday $9 million a year. I don't I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah. Um, do, do, do you – I mean, what can you do with that? Like if you're the Pacers, they can only – but if they offered him the full MLE right now, or as or soon as they're able to, um, I, th- I think he's, I think he's, uh, I, I think he'd be willing to stay. I agree. I think he's definitely worth the money too, but we'll see, man. A lot to look forward to, a lot to look at. It's funny because the more that I've tried to be like objective with things and just learn, uh, learn how to look at things from a, from a different perspective than as a fan, the less I've been a fan, like it's more just like, I mean, obviously wins and losses, you know, if a win happens, it's easier to write about. Uh, Mm -hmm. You feel a little bit, you still feel connected to it, but um, just not in the same way. I don't know. I'm sure you've, you, you, you kind of gone through the same thing uh, for sure. Everybody who does this job for real. Yeah. We'll all tell you 
we're not fans. That's the one thing I learned when I first started doing pro sports. Like it kills the, I would say it kills the fan in you because you don't look at the game the same way. You're not, you don't, you know, I don't know if I've ever been like a crazy fan about anything. I'm a New Orleans Saints fan because that was our team growing up. Uh, I've always hated the Utah Jazz because they stole our team and they stole our Mardi Gras colors. And I always hope that the, like, say to Utah burned in hell for taking my team as a kid. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I grew up watching Pistol Pete Maravich playing the Superdome. I mean, that's oh, how fun. Yeah. So, um, but once I've gotten to the industry, I, I don't have those kind of feelings towards Utah. Though I don't like seeing them wear our colors, our Mardi Gras colors. That's, that's preposterous. But, um, and, and I don't have a, a reaction either way. I, you become a fan of people, people who you know are good people. And you know who's good people? Nate McMillan is not only good, he's great. Kevin Pritchard is not only good, he's, he's great people. If they were assholes, I'd say so. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say nice stuff about them just because I still have to talk to them and deal with them. I tell you that they were. There's, trust me, there are people who are bad people, who are not nice people all throughout the business. Those guys aren't among them. So, um, you know, I, I think about guys like Paul Gasol, one of the greatest people I've ever dealt with. What a fantastic guy. So when I say these kinds of things about guys like Kim, you know, Garrett Temple, who's in Brooklyn, whether it's a guy like, say, Mark Gasol, who when he was in Memphis, when I knew him best, Mike Conley uh, is a guy who I just absolutely adore. Um, you know, um, if you go, go all the way out into, you know, Dwayne Casey, the coach of the Pistons, there are people on staffs, but not only the people you see, there's people behind the scenes that you know, scouts, front office folks, um, there's so many to count that you can't even count who belong to different organizations who are good people. And so that's when I say you're not a fan necessarily because you don't like basketball anymore. I love it more. But what happens is you know a lot of people who you like beyond the players on the court and the coaches who you want to see succeed and want to see them do well. Therefore, you can't really – I don't – you don't you don't have a rooting interest. Whereas you're a fan, all you see are the colors and the team that you like on the floor and nothing more. You don't know Kevin Pritchard well, or you don't know of him much. You don't know of Chad Buchanan or the guys who are the, the, the physicians on the team, the athletic trainers. And there's a whole host of other people that you'll never see and never know who they are if they walk by you on the street. But they're good people and you want them to succeed. And so when that, that team wins, even if you may not be a fan of that team per se growing up, you're happy for them because you know all of those people are celebrating and having a good time and they've succeeded. So every single team has people like that who I either personally know or like. And so I don't, you can't really root against them. There's always someone to root for on a winning team as, as people. And so that's why the, it, it killed that. So in that way, when you cover the league, that's where it kills the fan. You cannot tell me you are a fan of this team and you cover the league. It is impossible. Because that means if you do cover the league, you don't know anybody. Because <laughs> if you knew other people, you wouldn't know. The, the other thing is, too, like I said, it's such a goal. You know, it, it's, you know, when you're doing my job and you have deadlines to meet and that sort of stuff, you just want the game to end. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to work until to midnight because this game went in quadruple overtime. You know, no more than anybody else doing their job wants to stay late. I'm not getting, I get paid. I'm, I'm salary. I don't get paid extra for the game going overtime. So it doesn't benefit me. I just want the game to end. Whoever wins, wins. So when you're covering a team or you're covering a game or an event or a draft or anything, 
you, you're looking at it from that perspective because it's a job. The same way if you have a job and you're getting paid the same amount, whether you work eight hours or 12 hours, would you rather work 12 hours or eight hours? Oh, eight <laughs> oh, hours pretty, for sure. I mean, it's an easy yeah, choice. Uh, it's pretty simple. So that, so, and, and, so and, and you look at it that way. And sometimes people you like, by the way, do bad things. And just because that person plays for a team that you called yourself a fan of or is a coach of a team that you called yourself a fan of, if you, in order for you to do your job and do it correctly, you have to, you know, either write about it, report it, ask questions, tough questions about it. Uh, and that's the job. You don't not do it because, well, I'm a fan of that team. No, you know, you're not, that, that's, that's not how it works. And, you know, if somebody on the Pacers was, you know, hypothetically arrested for, you know, rape or rape charge, am I, can you, are you not going to write about it or talk about it or report it? Or if you break in the story, not break it because, you're a fan of the team, then you're not a reporter, right? Yeah. You're not, you're not, you're not doing, that's not what a reporter does. I don't want that to happen. I don't look forward to it happening. I don't even like having to ask questions about stuff like that. If somebody does something stupid, even if it's not something that extreme, but you know, I'm just using that as an extreme. Yeah. Example. But it's part of the job and you do it because just like with Kevin Pritchard firing Nate McMillan, it's part of the job. He had to fire him. It's not your option. He may be your friend. You may have known him, work with him for 10, 11, 12 years, but you have to fire him. That's the job. And so that's how you have to, when you do this, that's how you look at it. And too many people who look at this job think it's you sitting at the games, eating popcorn, rah, rah, waving pom-poms. I ain't doing none of that, man. I'm thinking about making deadline and on to the next stuff. I'm not trying to do a, you know, a quadruple overtime game so I can be there all night because it's fun. It's work. <laughs> I like it, but it's still work. Yeah. We just had seven people listening to this decide that they don't want to be reporters anymore. <laughs> hey, it's all right. I'm still sold on it. So, Jay, thank you as always for coming on, man. I always love getting to talk with you. Uh, what are you working on right now that you want people to know about? Uh, I'm working on which beach I'm about to go down to here in Florida. Because <laughs> I'm about three miles from the beach. That's I'm absolutely, at least right now, as long as nothing else happens, I'm not doing anything else other than what I just had put out last night about kind of the culture of the Pacers and what they want to look for in a coach going forward. But right now, this is kind of a dead time because, you know, unless they make some other personnel moves, I know some other things that have been happening that I can't report on yet. It's still too early in the process. Uh, but hopefully in the next two weeks, you guys hear little or nothing from me that in, regards to the, in regards to the Pacers. At least, God, I hope not. I need a break. Most definitely. Well, Jay, thanks again. Uh, to everyone listening at home, please be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on Spotify. Read us at IndieCornrows.com and be sure to check out Jay's stuff at the Indie Star. Jay, I'll talk to you later, man.